Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond listeners of KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and you are listening to Wild Oak Living. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m., and it's all about living sustainably in building community in Mendocino County and beyond. Today we're going to be we're going to be talking about two topics. I'm going to start out by talking with Janie Victoria Ward about a book called Sister Resisters: Mentoring Black Women on Campus. It's going to be a fascinating subject. Be sure to stay tuned for that. And then at about uh, 9:35 or 9:40 this morning, we're going to be joined by Sarah Gruski, or who is a farmer here in Mendocino County, and she's going to talk to us about a farm tour coming up this weekend, so stay tuned for that. Let's start by uh, with our first topic, uh, a book called Sister Resisters. Um, we're going to be talking about that title and what that means in, in a moment, but I just want to give you a bit of background before we talk, uh, and I'd like to uh, welcome my guest, uh, Professor Jane, Janie Ward, who is a professor emeritus at the Departments of Education and Africana Studies at Simmons University. She's the co-editor of three books and the author of The Skin We're In, Teaching Our Teens to Be Emotionally Strong, Socially Smart, and Spiritually Connected. And today we're going to be talking, as I said, about this book called Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. Um, Janie uh, Ward and uh, Tracy Robinson Wood, they are experts in the developmental and identity challenges of young people of color. They share a new approach to working with this historically underserved student group through case studies, student narratives, and research findings. The authors document the specific deterrence young black women face daily on campus from cultural pressures and class bias to racist and misogynistic microaggressions. They call on campus mentors, typically white women, to increase their own cultural competencies so that they may better support, work with, and advocate for their student mentees. This sister-resistor mentorship model emphasizes the acquisition of cultural knowledge, the power of intersectionality, and the critical role of resistance in the lives of black and white women as they navigate interpersonal and institutional bias and discrimination. The book Sister Resisters highlights the dual and interactive developmental processes that transpire in both halves of the mentor-mentee relationship. The book provides anti-racist, consciousness-raising self-assessments and other growth-enhancing recommendations for women who endeavor to mentor as, uh, as staunch supporters. Suggesting evidence-based strategies that promote healthy resistance to negative social and political experiences, Sister Resistors equips both mentors and mentees with thoughtfully designed, culturally informed skills that can further educational, racial, and gender equality on campus. And I believe we have just been joined by Professor Robinson Wood, Tracy Robinson Wood. Tracy, are you with us? I apologize for my delay. I could not get on via Zoom, so that's why I'm calling in via the phone. Okay. All right. If if you could just um, speak as as close to your phone as possible, because you're a little, you sound a little distant. Okay. Is All that right. any better? I, yeah, I think so. I hope that's great. Thank you. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. 
I'm, I'm, I'm okay. asking my engineer and he gave me a thumbs up. Okay, so great. Uh, all right. Well, welcome. As loud as possible because I, because uh, I can't hear you, Tracy. So really loud. Okay. Please. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, I just, Tracy, I just finished reading uh, the the introduction. Well, not the introduction to your book. That that's that's actually something I wanted to share as well too. But uh, rather than my reading it, uh, uh, maybe uh, Janie, you could start by giving us a background about what motivated you to write this book and why focus on Black women in college. Sure. Uh, good morning to you and your audience. So Tracy and I um, go back a very long way. We were in graduate school together. And as graduate students, um, as graduate students, we would sit around and we would talk about, of course, the curriculum and what we were learning and how what we were learning sort of fit with our own lives as well as um, you know, might have run counter to the experiences we were having. and. Um, we started to talk about this idea of resistance, by which we mean black women, because I'm talking about black women coming together um, as friends and colleagues, often share experiences where they have felt like they were running up against um, things in life that just didn't feel right. They were either microaggressions or they were blatant um, uh, experiences of racism or sexism. And, and we felt that um, we had learned as little girls how important it is to stand up and push against those kinds of invalidations. So our ideas about resistance started a very long time ago before we became professionals. And then we became professionals. We both became professors um, at two different um, institutions. Uh, we ended up at predominantly white institutions and very often young black women would come into our offices, seek us out and talk to us about some of the problems that they were facing on campus. Sometimes the girls had um, unconventional names and it seemed as though the professor, for the life of him or her, just could not remember what their names were or would confuse them with someone else. The young women talked about walking across campus and being assumed to be a member of the housekeeping staff. Right? They talked about being assumed to be poor or presumed to be incompetent. And of course, they would share with us the stereotypic misrepresentations of what it is to be a black woman that they would often encounter in class. So ideas that black women are loud, that black women are violent, that black women are mean. And they had to navigate this world of gendered racism and they were looking to us um, for assistance. So that's when Tracy and I started thinking about the unique role that mentors play when they are working with black women and probably other women of color. You, you, in, in the introduction of your book, you talk about, uh, you give a, a bit of a historical perspective in the sense that, uh, you know, tradi his historically, um, 
um, and, <clears throat> but maybe you could you could explain this a bit because you have the data a bit more about how the, the transition from uh, uh, in, attending primarily historically black colleges to in, uh, more and more uh, black women, black women, black people, in, but black women especially attending white campuses, as you said, um, and that uh, and that the enrollment of black women in particular sort of lags behind the enrollment where uh, uh, there seems to be there seems to be a difference in terms of the growth of enrollment for black women compared to uh, the growth of enrollment of black people at in white colleges historically white colleges uh, overall and and you ask the question you start I think to talking in the book about why that is and I think you've just explained a bit about about you know the the discrimination and the misogyny and and all of those things, but um, give us a bit of a historical context and and how this has evolved in the last few decades and where we are now. Well, I can certainly speak to that. I I certainly think that we have to consider macro issues, and um, what I mean by that is black people have a history of certainly being discriminated because of the color of their skin. And that has had implications for intergenerational transfer of wealth. And so historically black colleges were created um, in the 19th century to basically um, prepare black people um, who were emerging out of slavery and to prepare them for um, skills and, and trades. Um, and we know that white people, abolitionists, were involved in, in that effort. Um, to this day, there are um, black colleges that have a huge presence throughout the nation, not just in the South. And they also continue to play a huge role in disproportionately producing graduates of STEM pro programs, so science, technology, uh, engineering, uh, and math. They have also had a commitment to taking students who have um, unfortunately been impacted by racism that shows up in our, um, in our public schools um, and turning, if you will, coal into diamonds, nurturing young people, providing them with the remediation that they need, but also holding with them their dreams for success. So a history oftentimes of preparing young people for the future, not only with regards to academic skills, um, but also how to deal with uh, discrimination and how to um, persevere um, and apply for jobs and to be aware of opportunities and to walk through the doors of opportunities. In, um, at predominantly white institutions, we have young black people um, who um, have those same dreams and goals as their ancestors had, and we have disproportionately white women who are operating in the role of mentors, because white women, too, have benefited from um, programs, federal programs, e.g., affirmative action. And also, white women are oftentimes the ones to volunteer for mentoring programs. But they are also the students who are in student development, counseling, human services programs that build the skills and the competencies interpersonally to work effectively as mentors. And we also live in a society where there is tremendous racial segregation. 
And so oftentimes white people have predominantly white social networks, which means that white people may not have black friends. I ask my students, think about the last three people you may have invited into your home for dinner. What do you know about their ethnicity and their race and their class? And oftentimes our networks are very homogenous. So Janie and I have benefited as black women uh, of having relationships with white women over the decades that have helped us to feel optimistic and rather hopeful about the role that white mentors can play to be effective, competent, confident mentors to young black women. But oftentimes this racial segregation means that white women may say, I really don't feel well equipped to be a mentor. I don't know what to say when my mentee talks to me about an experience that they may have had with racial discrimination. And so Janie and I are very clear in the book about how to address that and to uh, really give them tools and a toolkit to help them to feel much more uh, prepared uh, than I than we think that they oftentimes are. Right. And perhaps a bit a bit less shy to to even approach the subject, right? I, I, yes, yes, shy, yes. Definitely. Shy is one thing, right. But I think also nobody wants to feel like they are failures, right? And so we don't want to move into areas or arenas where we're thinking, I really don't know what to do, or I'm, I don't know what to ask, or I don't know where to go to get help, or I don't feel competent in this. And so what, what do people do when they're thrust into the role of wanting to um, help guide a young mentee and feeling like, I, I just, I don't know how to do that, right? And so that's what we want to lift the veil and say it's okay to not know. We understand how these larger macro issues, racism, has segregated us and have really not given white women tools to be able to feel confident about broaching conversations of race and racism. But that lack of confidence can impair a black mentee's ability to take full advantage of a higher education opportunity because um, the mentee needs the mentor to show up uh, clearly and competently uh, and hold conversations that she needs to have about her life, about their life, because I don't want to um, not respect the gender fluidity that we certainly see on our campuses. Not everybody is her and she. But um, so if a black mentee comes to the mentor, we want the mentor to feel as if I, I can hear what you're saying and if I need other help, I, I have more clarity about how to go about getting that. And this book, we feel, is a huge uh, effort in that help that is needed. I, I'm Tracy, I just realized that uh, you joined our conversation, but I didn't actually formally introduce you. So I would like to introduce you as the co-author of the book, Sister Resistors, as we're talking about today. And uh, Tracy Robinson Wood is professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University. She's the author of The Convergence of Race, Ethnicity and Gender, Multiple Identities in Counseling, which is now in its fifth edition. And as I said, she is the co-author together with Professor Janie Victoria Ward uh, of a book called Sister Resistor. And, and uh, that's the book that we're talking about. It's about mentoring black women on campus. I have to tell you that uh, even though I'm uh, even though I, I'm a white woman, I'm an older white woman, uh, I did uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so the whole topic of mentoring is actually close to my heart in the sense that I actually personally would have loved to have a really good mentor and probably would have made a huge difference in my life. I, I turned out okay anyway. 
you know, but it was much harder, I feel, than it could have been if I'd had a really effective and strong and, 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 and empathic mentor that, you know, that, that already knew the ropes. Uh, and, well, and that, yeah. that reflection is um, exactly um, the process that jump-started this book. As Tracy and I were thinking about our own lives, both before we met, um, so our undergraduate lives, and then our graduate school experiences, we too came to the same conclusion that we didn't have mentors in our lives, or we certainly didn't have formal mentors the way that we think about them today. Um, but by the time, what, what we had was each other. And because we had each other, and in our cases, we were surrounded by smart um, black women who were um, uh, focused on um, making it and um, climbing that ladder and breaking through doors that had been previously closed. We had each other to rely on, right? Um, but we also could see that there were people in our graduate program who had adult mentors at the institution, professors and administrators who were behaving in more formal ways, helping them to think about the best internship to get or think about the, the best um, first job to accept. Um, and the kinds of jobs maybe you could pass up and let somebody else take. Um, we didn't have that, right? And so as we were thinking about our own lives and like, like you, we turned out pretty well, but think of how much further we could have gone as well as think about some of the people in institutions across the country who do not have friendship patterns, who do not have um, sister circles that can step in and help. You wonder how many women may have fallen by the wayside because they didn't have an adult mentor, nor did they have a colleague or another student who could step in and um, provide that kind of assistance. And that actually leads me to thinking uh, when you mentioned fall by the wayside, um, how many young black women uh, don't even end up in college in the, in a situation where they could benefit from a mentor because they didn't have a mentor in high school or in middle school uh, that encouraged them to go on the on on this path? A few couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a young woman. Uh, uh, a young Latino woman who uh, is a National Merit Scholarship recipient, uh, and she, you know, she grew up in in a in a situation of, of frequently changing foster homes, and and um, somehow ended up with somebody who encouraged her, and um, and and it helped her tremendously, and and it's such a beautiful example of what you're trying to, you know, what what you're telling us about is is that somebody saw something in her and encouraged her and, and encouraged her to graduate from high school and then encouraged her to, you know, to apply for all these scholarships. And she finally ended up with a national merit scholarship. So it's, it's a really beautiful example that what you're talking about works. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. We, we need mentors to, to step up um, and to, as we say, shine their, their lamps because 
people can fall through the cracks very easily. Um, not everybody has the same catch net, so that if you do make a misstep, which is not uncommon when people are young and finding their ways and dealing with their underdeveloped brains, um, there needs to be catch nets that basically allow you to make mistakes but still move forward, finish your degree, or go to a different school um, and start, if you will, over. But what, what does it mean for young people who, who don't have um, the appropriate guardrails, if you will, in the term, in the in this uh, form of human um, resources as well as fiscal resources to help guide, help them to avoid certain uh, pitfalls, help them to recover when they do, um, you know, uh, make some normal developmental um, errors, and so that has implications for then their children uh, with regards to wealth and resources that they're able to pass on, not to mention, and we speak about this in the last chapter of the book, that the, the mental health cost of, of dealing with um, kind of these failed stops along the way. I'm very grateful to have had Jane, Janie, you know, during my graduate school years. And yet, I, I want I want universities to, to step up and be more responsible. We came out okay, and I think we did rather well, but I don't think it should have been as hard as it was. And I, I think it, it's one thing to recruit students, uh, because certain students get mentoring, um, formally as well as informally, and others don't. And so I want universities to think about who is likely to be mentored, and what is it about that relationship that makes the mentor want to step forward and mentor this young person? And who do we decide is less worthy of our time and our talent? Um, and, and that uh, doesn't honor the mission of universities to um, include and to create an environment where all students, irrespective of your um, your disabilities or your language or your race or your gender, to uh, be welcomed here and to receive what is needed to be successful. Yeah. Go ahead, Janie. Well, I was just going to add that I truly believe that colleges want to do better. You know, we are at a time in this nation in which demographics are shifting and a large number of students who are coming into college are uh, students of color. That is a good thing, but not all of those students who are admitted to college are graduating after four years, five years, even six years. We have huge dropout rates and a lot of students who start a college um, career end up leaving and they leave in debt. That is not good for this nation. It is not good for the individual um, student and it is not good for their family, um, their immediate family or their family in the future if they are settled, saddled with debt as they move into um, their professional lives. So we have to do better at not only recruiting students, but holding on to those students and um, creating an environment in which they can flourish and actually graduate with a degree. And we believe that it can be done. And I think that it can be done with um, uh, more attention to intentional mentoring, much like we are describing in our book. Talk a bit more and about that. Yeah, go ahead. Go oh, ahead, Tracy. Sorry. 
I was just going to say, excuse me for interrupting. I was just going to say, universities can be smart to develop good alumni, um, you know, so that based on the quality of the experience that they had in college, um, you know, to, to uh, foster relationships that would encourage those graduates uh, as they become successful to give back to their institutions. Um, and uh, I, I think universities need to think about it. It's one thing to recruit. It's also important to retain and help students to be mindful of the quality of the experience that they're having uh, to encourage other people to uh, to be educated in those same spaces um, so that you can recruit new people, but also give of your uh, the wealth that you have uh, have accrued uh, and give it back to your your institution. Um, so I think that that's an important strategy for uh, universities and colleges too. What would you say to um, let's say let's say we have we have a couple of colleges here in in our area. We also have you know several high schools. What would you say to um, women, especially white women, who, you know who who, who uh, are inspired now by what you've been telling us and who are saying, okay, maybe I could do this. Um, uh, and and I want to step forward, you know, and make myself available and engage in this. What would you say to encourage, or or what would be that like the first few steps that you would encourage that if there isn't already a formal mentoring program at, at a school? Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, if you are in a university or even in a high school um, uh, that has a campus, um, uh, the first thing I would look into is does our institution have mentoring programs? Sometimes they're formal, other times they are informal. And um, if they don't, then perhaps you could step up to the plate and create a mentoring program. Second thing I would do is I would say that if you're going to do mentoring cross-racially, the very first thing you have to do is prepare yourself for that work. For as, um, as Tracy had said earlier, a lot of um, white women are ill-prepared, um, not because of any deficiencies that they have, internal deficiencies, but because so many white women grow up in areas in which they um, they just not are ex they are not exposed or they don't have this information. So the first thing you want to do is get the information. There are so many great books out there, um, so many great movies. Um, so many important conversations that you can have with your colleagues about race and racism. And it's not just about black people or brown people have race and experience racism, but it's also thinking about how has racism shaped my life as a white woman, as a white man? How has it created barriers to the relationships that I wanna build? with black students, with brown students on campus. So it's about focusing on all of those kinds of, um, all of those kinds of ideas and practices that are out there and are um, just waiting for us to avail ourselves of. Then the third thing I would mention is the importance of creating a space for young black women to talk about what they are dealing with on campus. Right? With each other? 
Well, yes, in a, and in a cross-racial mentoring relationship, conversations about race are absolutely key. And that's where sometimes white women pull back, they get anxious, they're not sure what they should say, they're afraid of saying the right thing, and they communicate to the student that this is not a safe place for us to talk about these kinds of things. We want to blow that up. We want to put race talk at the center. We recognize that sometimes we make mistakes. But one of the best ways to overcome that is to learn how to listen, right? So when a student shares with you an experience that she's having in a class, that may be occurring with a colleague that you know, right? You've never seen this side of the colleague. Don't necessarily um, imagine that that student is wrong. You listen to the student, you take in what they're saying, you think about um, strategies that a student might adopt to be able to navigate the situation and together you figure out, okay, how do we move forward? That's the sister-resister idea that we're talking about. An adult woman and a younger woman coming together, um, creating a, a, a strategy of resistance that is effective, confident, and within her control. Well, we've almost come to the end of our time slot and we probably could talk hours more about this topic, I understand. But I just wanted to give each one of you a chance uh, to leave us with some with some thoughts uh, that you would like us to take away. Uh, and I don't know who wants to start. Tracy, do you want to start? Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to start. And um, I'm just thinking about my own experience. My, my children will be entering high school um, in about a year from now. And so um, we're in the process of, you know, and touring and, and asking questions. And, and what I'm finding is that um, predominantly white institutions seem to be very concerned about their lack of diversity. Um, and um, but when I inquire as to so, so what is being done, well, it's hard to recruit you know, black faculty or, or even black students to this particular area. Um, and so then I ask, well, do you have relationships? Do you have friendships with, with black people? And so if, if we're, in response to your question earlier, if, what, what can white women do? Think about who is in your life. Who do you regard um, as someone to whom you can turn uh, with these questions? What, what uh, are you willing to do and what can you do? Do you have allies, people who you can go and speak with or say, let's, let's start a mentoring program or let's do a book club and, and read this book. Let's invite students. Um, let's invite alum to, to join us uh, to show that this is evidence of what we are seeking to change. Because one of the responses that I'm getting when I ask about DEI efforts or diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on campus, what I am met with is, well, we're working on it. And 
I want institutions to understand that that answer falls short of what many parents need and want to hear. Um, think about it. Is that the kind of response that you want for an institution to say, well, what are you doing about the sexism on your campus? Or what are you doing about the ableism, the fact that my child in a wheelchair cannot navigate you know, these stairs? We're working on it. Ah, no, that's we can do better. So let's do better. And the book provides better, but people need community to do better because otherwise it can feel like such an uphill battle. And so there's, we feel hopeful and excited about what is possible. People want to have conversations. I think they're hungry for them. And this book really, I think, is a bomb to people's need to want to have these uh, conversations about race and racism uh, because it is relationally rich and it's an invitation. Thank you, Tracy. Tracy Robinson Wood, um, one of the co-authors of Sister Resisters, and Janie Ward, uh, uh, what are your closing thoughts for us? Well, um, I am hope, like Tracy, I am also very hopeful. We are in um, a space right now in the United States in which there are large numbers of people who are trying to figure out how to do better. Um, colleges are about intellectual development, but they're also about social development and the development of morals and, and values that are gonna carry you um, into the future. So um, I, I am looking to my colleagues to join us in creating a cadre of sister resistors who are out there fighting the good fight um, intergenerationally and cross-racially as we um, move through um, this century. And, you know, we didn't spend much time on the, on the concept of resistors, and I just want to leave our listeners with the, with the thought that you have a, a, a very positive and inviting and constructive definition of, of what resisting means. Just in case somebody gets a little scared off by the word, I would encourage you to overcome that and to read the book. Um, Sister Resisters is the book, Mentoring Black Women on Campus, and my guests have been Professor Janie Ward, uh, and Professor Tracy Robinson Wood. Thank you both for joining us. Do you have a website that goes with the book where our readers, our listeners could find out more about your work? We so, don't have a website, but people can join us um, at our email addresses. Um, and mine is tr.robinson at northeastern.edu. And I'll let Janie share hers. And I'm very simple, ward at simmons.edu. Ward at Simmons.edu. And what was yours again, Tracy? tr.robinson at northeastern.edu. Great. Thank you both. And thank you for writing this in engaging and, and inspiring book called Sister Resisters. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks thank for you for the invitation. Us. All the best for your work. Thank you very much. You are listening to Wild Oak Living, and this is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. It's all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. And we are going to now move from beyond to back to Mendocino County. Uh, and that is, I'm, I'm, I am now joined by Sarah. Sarah, I still don't know. I, st I realize I still forgot to ask you whether your last name is pronounced Grusky or Gruski. 
Well, most people uh, pronounce it Grusky. Excuse the clanking of the barn door there. I just put my goats away. Um, you pronounce it Grusky, but if we want to be true to the old world origins of it, the Polish Jewish name, it's Gruski, of course. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's why I'm wondering, you know. Um, Yes. Um, so, and 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 you already introduced the farm noise behind you, and that and and the reason for that is that Sarah Gruski Gruski is a farmer in Mendocino County in the Willits area, and she is joining us from the farm, uh, doing doing your farm chores, right, Sarah? Yes, I'm milking the goats at the moment. Uh, they are very full of milk. We just um, took the kids over to my daughter's place. Um, okay. Yeah, you're milking, you're milking the goats. Is 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 that uh, is that an activity? I I, I meant go, goats are, are pretty temperamental animals. Is is that an easy job or is that hard to milk goats? <laughs> well, it depends on the day of the week. Right now, they're really annoyed at me because I'm late and it's getting hot, and they want to go out to pasture. Um, uh, goats are very social animals. They're, you know, I love them because they're mischievous and they're rebels. Um, I love them also because uh, um, in the history of peasant agriculture or small farm agriculture, they've played a tremendous role because they're very resilient animals. So, you know, they're the animals we need <laughs> around. And they're, you know, they... Um, uh, have often been forced up into the hills, just like peasant farmers have. They don't get the richest land, um, and their browsers, they you know can eat a huge range of things. That makes them very resilient animals. They create delicious milk and cheese and yogurt and kefir and um, and for us here at the farm, they're they're uh, you know an integrative force in in what we call full circle farming. So you know everything. Uh, not just their milk, but their fertility um, is really important to our farm. And we use the hay for mulching um, uh, here on the edge of climate change in the hotter, drier world. Um, and uh, so the mulching helps to hold the moisture in the soil and and the fertility is good for the land. Um, so, and they, you know, they... They can eat, uh, you know, our garden waste, and so it just helps to to make sure that everything uh, everything circles through and has a use and contributes. They're great animals. I love them. <laughs> and they're also they also play a role in making our lands more fire safe, right? Absolutely. Yeah. More and more, they're being used um, as brush goats and um, helping to clear to clear land. Um, there's all kinds of goat herds that are moved around, um, way better than a lawnmower, way better than a, uh, um, just really good at clearing clearing that understory brush. Yeah. Um, they're fantastic. Yeah. And they and they um, they also eat poison oak, which other grazing animals don't eat. I I heard. Yes, I mean people we. You know, goats are opportunistic browsers, so they'll always eat what's, you know, the juiciest and the, the most desirable of what's around them at any given moment. And also, they're, they're amazing herbalists, so they eat the plants that they might need to heal themselves at that particular moment. 
Um, so they don't always eat poison oak, um, and you can't just expect them to always eat it. They'll more likely eat it um, in the early spring when the shoots are tender and new, and less likely to eat it in you know August. Um, uh, but it is a very good way, if you are someone who tends to get poison oak, it's a very good way to help your immune system uh, tolerate it better if you drink the milk from a goat that's eaten poison oak recently. Oh, Over I was wondering, time. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. Yep, they, that, that does help to uh, um, build tolerance in the immune system uh, to poison oak if you, eat, if you drink their milk or eat their cheese when they're eating the poison oak, which for us is usually in the spring. Yeah, they'll eat a lot in the spring. Right, right. I, I, I want to circle back for just a moment because we jumped right into our interview, but I want to <laughs> make sure that our peop, uh, our listeners know that uh, my guest Sarah Gruski, Sarah Gruski is um, uh, at the Green Uprising Farm in Willits. And the reason we're talking today is because you have a farm tour coming up this weekend, Saturday, July 16th. And I'm wondering if you would like to tell us a bit more about that and, and what people can see at the farm and what you're, what you're going to be demonstrating. Because it's, it, I'm, reading the, I'm looking at the announcement here and it sounds like it's going to be a very full tour. <laughs> yes. Um, let me first say that the tour is part of a series of uh, uh, local garden tours that's sponsored by the Elder Broads. Um, a group of elders um, uh, who are weaving and mending community. And the first one already happened. That was at the Motherland Botanical Sanctuary and Herb School here. Um, uh, but ours is happening Saturday, July 16th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, on August 13th, there's a tour at Ridgewood Ranch of the Golden Rule Gardens, the New Agrarian Collective, and um, Headwater Meats. And then on August 13th at Fortunate Farm on the coast um, in Casper. Um, so it's a whole series. Uh, um, uh, oh, hmm. yeah. So so the in the morning. Yeah, so I guess the August 13th ones uh, are are uh, at the same time basically, but um, in different places. Um, I'm just realizing that myself. Um, yeah. So. Our farm tour, we're a multi-generational uh, family farm and community. We have sort of a semi-intentional community. Sometimes we call it an unintentional community. Also here <laughs> on our farm um, of nine adults and three children. Um, and I think the main thing that we're going to focus on in the farm, on the farm tour is uh, our theme is, is sort of farming in a hotter, drier climate. Um, we, uh, have a legal water diversion from Davis Creek, uh, which pretty nearly dried up last year. Um, we, uh, you know, stopped pumping from the creek and, uh, you know, purchased water and let a lot of things die. This year, we're kind of in the same situation, but Davis Creek is in a little better situation. Um, and looking for, for, for alternatives to solve our water problem. Um, and have you know reduced a lot of water through means like using drip, more drip, less sprayer, planting less, um, and decreasing our production in the in the summer and producing more during the fall and winter and the spring. 
we're planting more deep-rooted perennials and less annuals, um, focusing more on our trees and our grapes, experimenting more with drought-tolerant varieties, with dry farming, um, perennializing things, mulching a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so those are some of the things we're going to be talking about uh, are some of the things that yeah we're experimenting with to try to to survive um, with less water um, and uh, and then we also uh, um, have a uh, an herb garden here a medicinal herb garden which we will be proudly touring. Um, where we're experimenting with a whole variety of things, including some more Chinese herbs this year, some of which are very good for COVID. Um, we also have always focused on what we call herbs for reproductive freedom, which are even more pertinent now in the wake of the overturn of the Supreme Court decision. So we'll be talking about herbs for reproductive freedom. Um, and, uh, and another theme in the tour is eating, of course. Um, so as we walk through the different gardens and, and talk about them, uh, we'll be encouraging people to collect things, um, medicinals that we might put in a tea for our snack or uh, uh, culinaries that we might infuse our goat cheese with that we'll have for the snack. Um, uh, we'll be making a green pesto. So things we might want to put in the green pesto, um, uh, maybe some parsley. Our parsley is looking really nice. Um, so so we'll be uh, collecting up things, and then uh, the last hour of the tour, we'll be sitting out in our big picnic tables in our food forest and having a feast and talking to each other. So that's that the plan lovely. for the tour. <laughs> Yeah, we're all lovely. looking forward to it. Yeah. And again, this is this Saturday, July 16th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, and you mentioned in your announcement that space is limited and you would like people to call and make reservations. Shall we give out the phone number now and then we'll give it out again at the end of the program? That sounds great. Yes, we have, um, I think, 10 or 11 people signed up. I think we'll go up to you know 15 or 16 um, so please do call, um, and uh, we'll add you to the list. The number is uh, area code 707-216-5549, and we welcome you all to the tour. We're, we're really, um, we've been on this land for, this is our 15th year, and uh, um, obviously, it's a never-ending work in progress, but uh, but it's a real thrill for us to be able to to show it off and and share it with our community. So we're we're really looking forward to it. You mentioned earlier um, you're you're uh, uh, that you are focusing more deeply on perennials and and drought tolerant varieties of 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 food crops. Uh, and also, also, you mentioned in your announcement that you're going to be talking about, um, you know, farming perspectives gained from water shortages, well drilling failures. Um, talk a bit, talk a bit more about that, about the whole, the whole, um, I guess, need to move towards more resilience and more drought tolerant 
costs, but also to more to, towards more um, local independence, right? In terms of food supply, I'm wondering if you want to talk a bit about more that, that about that. Yes. Uh, well, um, basically, last year uh, we couldn't we couldn't water our raspberries, and we watched them die. But we realized that you know raspberries aren't the right thing for us here at this time and place um, in history. <laughs> Goodbye to raspberries, um, which the kids did I, not I know about. how you feel, um, Sarah, because I, when I first moved here, I planted my two favorite berries, which are uh, gooseberries and black currants. And I also had to watch them die, even though I had water, but it was just too hot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, our sun is so bright, and it's very difficult for the raspberries for that reason too. Um, yeah. So over the winter, um, we've been uh, replanting with uh, some some grape varieties, most mostly table grape varieties um, from our neighbor Richard Jeske, um, some Herberts and Glenoras, and um, uh, I can't remember the other varieties right now, but. That's been really, really wonderful um, uh, to get some new grapes in. Uh, we, uh, Michael's um, eldest son, um, Jacob, who many people know because he runs uh, North Spur Brewery here, also went through a, a phase um, of, of uh, wanting to, to make wine. So we have a Pinot Noir vineyard in our lower field, which we didn't water for at all for four or five years. And it, that tested that it passed the, the drought tolerance test with flying colors, um, and uh, we actually did give it a little bit of water this year because we don't want to neglect it totally. But um, but grapes are amazing; they have a very very deep root structure. Um, we're focusing also on um, uh, deep purple grapes uh, because deep purples, um, from a medicinal point of view, are full of anthocyanins, which uh, are so good yeah, for our health, for our heart, to the great antioxidants. Um, they're just full of all kinds of minerals and and uh, uh, vitamins, and uh, and are delicious. So uh, we often will do what's called a shrub yeah, with the Pinot Noir juice. We'll add um, some uh, uh, some herbs that have been um, immersed in apple cider vinegar and do and do a medicinal shrub with a peanut. Uh, so there's all kinds that of sounds delicious. <laughs> all kinds of new possibilities with uh, with the drought. Um, we uh, uh, are also continuing um, to do more uh, of what we call the Native American cornucopia which includes many drought-tolerant uh, corn and bean varieties. Um, one of the things about, uh, uh, you know, sort of the history of, of settler colonialism here is that uh, we never acknowledge um, or recognize the amazing, amazing uh, inheritance um, uh, of corn. And I'm talking about dry corn here. Not really what um, you know. What industrial uh, um, commercial agriculture has done to corn, which has mostly made it into GMO corn and very sweet uh, 
corn for um, high, high fructose corn syrup, et cetera. But, um, but the real corn uh, that was bred for millennia by the native people of these lands, uh, um, those varieties are, are a great source of protein. Um, they're hardy, drought tolerant. Um, many of them have been bred for all kinds of climates around the country. And, um, and uh, you know, Mexico, Central America, et cetera. But uh, here we're growing a, a variety called Abenaki, um, which is uh, was bred by the Wabanaki people in uh, what is now Maine, um, and uh, and it does it performs really well. And we turn it into a polenta. Um, we also uh, um, like to acknowledge the legacy by paying indigenous royalties for the seed. Um, to the Wabanaki people. Um, we're growing peppery beans, um, also a, a, a drought-tolerant variety, um, and uh, a blue mountain corn, which is a flower corn. Um, we're really continuously experimenting with these plants because uh, they're such powerful and amazing plants and part of such uh, an incredible uh, legacy um, of farming. Um, so it's really important to learn about them and preserve them. Uh, so that's, that's another piece we, um, uh, are doing, we're, we always experiment as many people in our, our, uh, climatic area are with, with perennializing, um, brassicas. Uh, we're, we do that, uh, well, this year we did a lot with collards. Um, uh, they seem to do the best a little bit with some, uh, uh, I think that some of our broccoli came back too from last year. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been experimenting so with that too. I just, I just let my broccoli go to, go to seed and watch it come back the next year. That's right. It's, it's lazy person gardening, but Hey, yeah. you know, it works. <laughs> that's what we need. It works. Yeah. So, and it helps the, you know, the seed stock to, to acclimate. Um, uh, better to our climate over time. Um, so we're always doing those kinds of experiments too. What kind um, of squashes are, are you primarily growing now? Well, sadly, we just didn't get too much squash in. We just don't have enough room or enough water. Um, mm -hmm. Some good yeah. neighbors of ours, uh, um, Mike and Cammie down the road from us, uh, we have a little patch that they let us use there. And we put in um, some uh, some Sibley squash. Michael's been experimenting a lot with dry farming melons, and mm. he'll he'll talk the ear off of anyone who comes to the farm tour about dry farming melons. Um, you know, Sarah, uh, I just realized we we only have three minutes left, and I want to make sure we get in the information again about who you are. You, my guest is Sarah Grusky. Sarah Grusky, who is from up uprising farm green uprising farm in willets and they are doing a garden tour this saturday july 16th from 10 to 2 p 10 a.m to 2 p.m and sarah's talking about some of some of the amazing things and interesting and fascinating things that you'll see and the good food and good teas that you're going to be able to partake in while you're there there's only a few spots left and if you would like to make a reservation for that farm tour and and you are encouraged to make a reservation uh, 
707-216-5549. Sarah, we have about uh, a minute and a half, maybe two minutes left. Uh, I would encourage you, two minutes, exactly. I would encourage <laughs> you to uh, make some closing remarks uh, that you would like to leave our listeners with. Oh, dear. She's putting me on the spot. I have to say something profound. Oh, no, no. You can also say something funny, like tell us the name of the goat you're milking or something. <laughs> um, I just want to reiterate how uh, much we want to welcome people uh, over to our farm on Saturday to participate in the farm tour and uh, and to meet the goats and to meet uh, all of the people. I think a good, a fair selection the nine adults and three children who live here will be here um, to meet you and greet you and feed you. Um, so uh, uh, we really look forward to having you. Sounds wonderful, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on Wild Oak Living this morning. I really appreciate taking time out or, or talking to us while you were milking goats. That's such a wonderful image. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take, Thank you take so care much for and, having me, Johanna. And, and, Thank you. All the best. All the best for your farm and for your farm tours. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Wild Dog Living. We are about to head back to the studio in Philo, where you will be enjoying, I think, some wonderful jazz. That's usually what's coming up here in this time slot. And again, I appreciate your listening to me on Wild Dog Living. Uh, we, uh, I'm going to be back two weeks from today uh, uh, on Thursday. Let's see. July 28th, I think, uh, Thursday, then Thursday, two weeks from now, with the topics to be announced. If you have any feedback, send me an email, contact at wildoak.org, contact at wildoak.org. Thanks for listening, and now stay tuned to KZYX for jazz. Thank you very much. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.